We are continuing uh, this morning in this journey through the book of Isaiah. Um, and if you remember these last couple of weeks, we've uh, really been discussing the problem of uh, sin as it was seen in God's people in southern Judah. Um, but again, as we talked about last week, uh, even though the, the problem of sin runs very deep, we specifically discussed how God's grace runs deeper, even deeper than our sin. And although uh, humanity is completely deserving of judgment due to sin, and, and we are completely unable to do anything to thwart that, uh, God's grace and God's power shown to us in love provide an escape from our sin, namely salvation. We can be saved from that. And, and uh, I know last week we talked a little bit about this alliance that had been formed north of southern Judah, this alliance between northern Israel and uh, Syria. Uh, even though we talked about that a little bit last week, the focus to this point in Isaiah has primarily been upon God's people in southern Judah. Uh, God was revealing to his people how he would be working in both the near and in the distant future. Um, but it all centered upon that nation. It all centered on God's people in southern Judah. And in many ways, this isn't surprising. In fact, to, to a person living in that culture, uh, that culture of the ancient Near East at that time, it really was the only way to think about things because the, the predominant understanding of deities at that time was that a deity was tied to either a specific people, a specific nation, to a specific uh, land um, feature, if you will, hills, valleys, mountains, that type of thing. So, so really to to travel at that time, to leave one nation and go to another nation, or to go up the mountain, or to go down to the valley, or to go out into the sea, was to leave the realm of one god and enter the realm of a different god. That, that's, that's the predominant way of thinking in that culture. And, and we really get, uh, in the Bible, we get a real clear picture of that. Uh, there's a story in 1 Kings uh, chapter 20 that I think draws attention to this. In, the, in that story, there's King Ahaz of northern Israel who was attacked by King Ben-Hadad of Syria. So, so actually, the two nations that were in an alliance last week that we talked about, 150 years before that, they were fighting against one another. And so Ben-Hadad attacked King Ahaz and his army in the hills surrounding Samaria. And Ahaz and the Israelites were victorious. They, they won the battle. Ben-Hadad escaped. He fled from the battle. And what he sought to do was kind of regroup and reattack the following spring. And so as they were coming up with a battle plan, thinking through how to do that, um, some of his officials came to him with an idea. And what they said was, well, because the first battle was fought in the hills and we lost, the God of the Israelites must be a God of the hills. So let's attack them in the plains. Let's attack them down in the valley. And their God won't be any good there because he's a God of the hills. That, and you can see this way of thinking coming out. 
Well, it turns out that because God is sovereign over not just hills, but over everything, the Israelites were victorious again next spring as well, even though the battle was fought in the plains. But you can see in that story how that understanding of certain gods tied to certain places plays out. Well, let's fast forward 150 years to the time of Isaiah. Remember, God's people in southern Judah, they were facing threats from nations surrounding them. They were also uh, uh, facing the, the reality of their sin that they were having to deal with. And, but especially when it comes to these nations surrounding them. You know, if, if, uh, if chapters 1 through 12 of Isaiah tell us anything, it tells us that, that God most definitely holds jurisdiction over his people in southern Judah. There's no question about that. Um, a more biblical word to use would be sovereignty, that God is sovereign over his people in southern Judah. His authority, his power were definitely in play in southern Judah. But what about all those other nations? What about everybody else surrounding God's people at that time? You know, throughout their history, they faced threats from, from all sides. So the question is, was God simply relegated to protecting his people from those attacks in the promised land, or was he able to exert his power and his authority, his sovereignty beyond the borders of the promised land? Did he exercise authority over those other foreign nations as well? Well, odds are most of us here this morning consider the answer to that question pretty easy, right? I mean, we've, we've probably been taught that God is the God of all creation. There's not a square inch of reality that is outside of his control and authority. We, we take that to be basic truth. So we would say, well, that's an easy question. But if someone were to ask you, where in the Bible does it say that? Where, where do we learn that God is sovereign overall? One of the places that you can go is the passage we're looking at this morning. Isaiah chapters 13 all the way through 23. Um, and, and this is the largest section of, of uh, scripture that we'll look at in our study of Isaiah, this 11 chapters this morning. But these 11 chapters are, are ones that, that I think shouldn't be broken up because the picture that it paints is a picture of God's complete sovereignty. And I, and I think you'll, you'll hopefully see what I mean as we go through this. So let's kind of take that journey this morning with Isaiah's original audience and discover for ourselves the answer to that question. Does God's sovereignty extend beyond his people? Now, uh, we've got to keep in mind this morning, we're, we're going to see oracles spoken about all of these other nations these oracles were probably never delivered to those other nations. They were about the other nations, but they were delivered to God's people. So it's just something to kind of keep in mind as we go through this morning. And, and just to confuse you as much as I could, we're going to kind of go backwards through, through the chapters this morning. So, so turn with me first to Isaiah chapter 22. Now, this oracle is actually given to God's people, and it's about God's people. This is the one oracle in the midst of this whole section that is about God's people. 
Okay, the nation of, of uh, southern Judah, they are warned about what will happen if they persist in rebellion against God. And, and in the midst of, of really some difficult descriptions, perhaps the, the most striking is uh, verses 17 and 18 of Isaiah chapter 22. I'll read those for us. God says, Behold, the Lord will hurl you away violently, O you strong men. He will seize firm hold on you and whirl you around and around and throw you like a ball into, the wide, into a wide land. There you shall die, and there shall be your glorious chariots, you shame of your master's house. I mean, this speaks specifically about being exiled out of the land. God is warning them about what will happen if they persist in rebellion. Uh, and there aren't any other details given at this point, just that the people will be flung from the land. And we're going to move on quickly from here because, uh, again, God's sovereignty over his people has been well established to this point in the book of Isaiah. So I want to move on to the, to the rest of what Isaiah says here. Uh, again, the question is, does God's sovereignty extend to those other nations as well? Or is God just another tribal, territorial God like many would consider him to be at that time? Now turn with me to chapter 15. Actually, the very end of chapter 14. What we see here, the end of 14 is a, a uh, oracle given concerning Philistia. Now, now to help us visualize, because there's going to be a lot of nations that, that are mentioned here, um, we've got a map to put up on the screen. Jacob, can you get that map up there for us? There we go. So you can see um, kind of a little left and uh, lower than center is Jerusalem, uh, Judah. That, that's, I mean, that's God's people dwelling right there. So as we go through these uh, oracles that are given, we'll be able to see where they are up here. So at, uh, at the end of chapter 14 is the oracle against Philistia. Now that the word is above Jerusalem, the land itself, it actually would be like underneath the word Judah. They just couldn't write two words right one on top of the other. So Philistia is kind of in between to the west of Jerusalem, in between there and the Mediterranean Sea. So that's Philistia, a neighbor right there. Uh, chapter 15, chapter 16 talk about Moab, which is just to the east of the Dead Sea there. As you go on, chapter 17 gives an oracle concerning uh, Damascus and also uh, northern Israel. So Damascus is up there, that'd be the capital of Assyria. And then uh, Samaria would be the capital of northern Israel, also known as Ephraim. So God speaks an, an oracle against them as well. Chapter 18, there's an oracle against Cush, way down here on the bottom. It's not actually on this map, it's just it'd be down here, on, down below. That's where Cush would be. Chapter 19 is Egypt. You can see just above and to the left of that is where Egypt is located. Um, chapter 21 is an oracle against Babylon. This is way over here to the east, the city of Babylon. And then chapter 22 is Jerusalem, which we already saw. And then chapter 23 is Tyre and Sidon. So you come back and those are coastal cities right on the Mediterranean Sea there. So we're going to come back and examine some of the details of these oracles shortly, but, but for now, let's let the geography answer the question, does God's sovereignty exist outside of Jerusalem? 
outside of southern Judah? And the answer is yes. Yes, it does. That's why God is able to give all of these different oracles about all of these surrounding nations. His sovereignty does extend beyond the little dot that is Jerusalem there. It goes far beyond that. You can say this whole map is God's sovereignty. But it's bigger than that even. It's not even just this map. Turn with me to chapters 13 and 14 of Isaiah. I told you we're kind of going backwards here. So before Isaiah even gives any oracles about the specific nations that we looked at on that map, he speaks in chapters 13 and 14 about Babylon. Now chapter 21 has an oracle regarding Babylon, the specific city of Babylon. I would say that 13 and 14, this is a different Babylon. This is a different Babylon. Not, not that there's another city named Babylon, but that it's talking about something much bigger than just one city. In the Bible, the, the name Babylon does at times refer to a specific city, like in chapter 21 with that oracle. But the name Babylon also refers to something else. So if you were to go all the way back to Genesis chapter 11, there's the story of the Tower of Babel. You've probably heard before. It's a story where God's people collectively rebelled against his command to, uh, to spread across the earth, to fill it, to rule it in his name. Instead, they pridefully attempted to, to build a tower to the heavens. And, and quite literally, they sought to raise themselves up to God. Well, God saw what they were doing, and God showed them who really possessed the power and authority by by confusing their language. God miraculously caused the people there to start speaking different languages. And so as a result, they couldn't understand each other. Construction stopped, and then the people did scatter across the earth. And the place where that happened, of course, was called Babel. It took place at Babel. It's called the Tower of Babel. There are many who believe that the actual location of Babel is the physical city of Babylon. And it's not a coincidence that the names come from the same root word, Babel and Babylon. But even if that's not the exact physical location, what Babel and what Babylon stands for is this prideful, rebellious nature within us that seeks to set ourselves up above God. You see it in Babel, and, and, and as Babylon is referenced throughout the Bible, you see it there too, all the way to Revelation. You can go all the way to Revelation chapter 18. And John there talks about uh, this vision where he says, fallen is, is Babylon the great. Again, he's probably not talking about a specific city. He's talking about the fact that people on earth have been led astray uh, by this rebellious city, there's, there's, there's this theme of Babylon, this rebellious streak in us that goes all the way through Scripture from beginning to end. And so in Isaiah chapter 13 and 14, I believe that the oracle could have definitely applied to the literal city of Babylon, but that it was intended to, to represent any time mankind sets itself up against God. Any time. And, and for example, chapter 13, verse 11, God says, I will punish the world 
for its evil. I mean, that's something bigger than just a specific city. He's talking about this, this Babylon as a representative of rebellion. So God's sovereignty, if we come back to that, it's not just over southern Judah. It's not just over the nations on the map that we looked at here. God's sovereignty even extends over all people and all nations throughout all history who have rebelled against him. God's sovereignty extends over them as well. And that would include everyone. Everyone. I mean, we've all got that streak of Babylon within us. We've all rebelled against God in one form or another in our lives. So in a way, God's message through Isaiah here is that his sovereignty is much, much bigger than the prevailing understanding of how deities worked at that time. It's much bigger. And honestly, it's even bigger than what I just mentioned. Even when we talk about all people in all nations throughout all history, God's sovereignty is even larger than that. So look at chapter 14. Uh, we'll start uh, in verse, well, in verse 3, it talks about here, there's, a, there's an oracle given against the king of Babylon. Chapter 14, verses 3 and 4, you see that specifically mentioned. The king of Babylon. Just like how this message about Babylon applies to something larger than just a city, I think the message about the king of Babylon applies to something larger than just an individual leader of a single city. I mean, listen to, listen to chapter 14, starting at verse 12, and, and consider who this might also be describing as I read this. Isaiah 14, 12. How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. Above the stars of God, I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But you are brought down to Sheol, to the far reaches of the pit. Does that sound like it could be describing someone or something? Satan, maybe? It's quite often interpreted that way, that this is a description of Satan. So again, if the message given to Babylon in these two chapters is a message to all those who set themselves up in rebellion against God, then wouldn't it make sense that the leader of that rebellion would be Satan himself? So again, God's sovereignty, what does that tell us? Again, it, it's not just Jerusalem. God is not just sovereign over Jerusalem. He's not just sovereign over the nations on the map. He's not just sovereign over all people across all time who have rebelled against him. He is, he is sovereign in the spiritual realm as well. God possesses power and authority. He possesses sovereignty over Satan himself. I think sometimes we get, a, we get a picture painted for us that, that God and Satan are locked in this cosmic battle of two evenly matched deities, and maybe God's, maybe God's a little bit stronger than Satan. No, <laughs> no, Satan is warring against God, but he's doing so from a position of being under God's sovereignty. It's not an evenly matched battle. 
It's a battle in which God was always going to be victorious. Battle's probably not even the right word. Battle makes it seem like the outcome is in question. God's sovereignty extends over everything. Absolutely everything. So not only is there not a square inch in all creation over which God is not sovereign, but there's no place within the spiritual realm or any other realm that we don't even know about where God is not sovereign. It's all of it. He is all sovereign. He's almighty. He's all powerful. And when you read chapters 13 through 23 of Isaiah, that's the message that we're given. God's sovereignty is absolute. There's no doubt about it when we read these, uh, these chapters. So the question is then, what, what does that mean? What does it mean for God's people in southern Judah at that time? But what does it mean for us today as well? I mean, what are the, what are the practical implications of God's sovereignty? And I've highlighted two specific ones this morning that, that I think come out here in these chapters. And the first has to do with pride. Um, pride has, has no place among us. Pride ought not to exist among us because there's nowhere we can go and there's, there's nothing that we can do to escape the realm of God's sovereignty. But pride still sprouts up within us, doesn't it? <laughs> I mean, we already looked at, uh, at chapter 14 with uh, Satan, talks about the pride of this king of Babylon there. I mean, he was only an angel, but, but in his pride, he thought he could raise himself up to be like God. How foolish of him that was. How dangerous of him that was as well. So you see pride there. We can see pride among the, the uh, oracles given to the nations as well. So for example, chapter 16, verse six, uh, it says, we've heard of the pride of Moab, how proud he is of his arrogance, his pride and his insolence and his idle boasting, he is not right. So we see pride on the people of Moab there. Um, chapter 20. Such, a, such an interesting chapter where God prompted Isaiah to add an illustration to his message. For three years, Isaiah was to go around naked and barefoot. And yes, that is in the Bible. Look it up, Isaiah chapter 20. Now, three continuous years, I don't know. Was it over the course of three years? He just did it, I don't know. I don't know if it really matters. Isaiah was symbolizing the humility which Egypt and Cush specifically would experience when they were defeated by Assyria. That was the illustration that was given with his message. The Assyrians would come take the, them uh, captive, they would remove them from the land, and they would, they would take them into captivity, they would march them away naked, which was the common practice at that time. So whatever pride they would have previously had would have been wiped from them as a result of them being defeated. And then uh, again, chapter 23, the oracle against Tyre and Sidon. You can see pride coming out in verse nine. It says, the Lord of hosts has purposed it to defile the pompous pride of all glory, to dishonor all the honored of the earth. We just don't have any reason to be prideful, 
when it comes to our sovereign God. And when we allow pride to grow within us, it, it leads us to a place where we rebel against God. We think we know better than him. Uh, we, we act like we have more authority than him. We, we think that we can do better than him. Uh, you know, if you want a real uh, contemporary example of that, if you've been following the developments of uh, the investigations into the life of Robbie Zacharias lately, you can see what pride does. I mean, pride blinds us. It, it, it leads to rebellion within us. In the end, we'll find, just as these other nations did, we'll find, just as Satan did, that God's sovereignty extends over us as well. No matter how prideful and rebellious we become, God's sovereignty is still in play in our lives. Our pride is, is foolish and dangerous. It's foolish because we can't possibly be greater than our maker, but it's, it's dangerous as well because, as I said, pride leads to rebellion. And rebellion is met with judgment, as we, as we see in these chapters. So the, the, the question we ought to be asking then is, are there places in my life where pride tends to grow? Are, are, there, are there places where pride sprouts up you know, that, that I need to be very careful about? I need to exercise humility. And I think in those situations, in, in whatever place we might say, well, you know, I kind of tend to have pride there, we've got to recognize God's sovereignty in that specific area. We've got to humble ourselves beneath him and allow him to be that sovereign God that he is. So one of the practical applications there is it has to do with pride. We just shouldn't be prideful. The other thing when we think about God's sovereignty is that we can, we can trust in God. Because God is sovereign over Jerusalem and all the nations and across all time and in all realms, we can trust in him. But this is also where it gets tough this morning. Uh, because uh, it's one thing to talk about God's sovereignty uh, in a theoretical sense. And, and it's easier to stay at that level and, and just give kind of simple, crisp answers about God's sovereignty. Uh, but I want to journey into the practical sense this morning. Because uh, you know, when I look out among us here, our questions about God's sovereignty are not theoretical, right? They're, they're not. They're, they're questions that come in response to a medical diagnosis or, or questions in response to the death of a loved one or the loss of a job or brokenness of a relationship or, or, or the pain of infertility or, or any other number of things. They're practical questions about God's sovereignty that, that are connected to deep emotions in our lives. And, and so because of that, I, I do not want to try to give you a nice, simple answer this morning that fails to recognize those realities. Um, the truth is, I don't know. I don't. I don't know why 
In God's sovereignty, he allows the things that I've just mentioned. I can't give you the specific details of that. I don't want to pretend to know why. And, and I, think, I think as Christians, we need to be careful about acting like we do know, especially when it comes to, to specific details, and especially when interacting with someone who is in the midst of suffering. You know, giving, giving a line like, well, well, God must have wanted it this way, or, or this is all part of God's plan. Those probably are not helpful lines in the midst of those moments. Maybe you've been there wondering about God's sovereignty and that line was given to you and it's like, ah, you know, that, that can almost do more harm than good. And, and I think in our desire to, to explain God or, or to alleviate uncertainty or, or even to sincerely comfort someone, we might say those kinds of things, but the truth is we just don't know why. We don't know why God does what he does in his sovereignty. I don't know why God allowed the situation that you're thinking about right now. I, I, I don't know. I, I do know one thing. We can trust him. We can trust him in the midst of that. And in the midst of whatever question we have, we can trust him. In the midst of whatever pain we feel, we can trust him. Uh, we can trust him because he loves us so deeply. When we think about, you know, the case of Southern Judah here, uh, you know, they're in the midst of possible judgment upon them, uh, in the possible judgment upon the surrounding nations as well. You know, God kind of, in these prophecies, he kind of pulls back the curtain a little bit lets them know what he is up to. And, and just like the first couple weeks, we get some glimpses of that this week as well. So for example, the beginning of chapter 14, first couple verses there, God, God told them that, that though other nations would take them captive, they would eventually rule over those other nations. So God kind of gives them that little glimpse there. Um, if you go to chapter... Uh, 19, verses 16 through 25, God, God talks about this highway that's going to run between Egypt in the far south and Assyria in the far north. And, and, and this highway is a symbol of peace and cooperation. These, these nations would turn to God and they're going to worship God together. I mean, how incredible of a picture is that? Even today, I mean, the nations of the Middle East worshiping God together I mean, that's incredible, but it's foretold that it, that it will happen. So God shared with them some of what he was doing in his sovereignty. They, they kind of have glimpses of that. We don't always have those glimpses, do we? You know, uh, we think about prophecy in our life where God pulls back the curtain and says, this is what I'm doing. You know, uh, that's probably rare. Uh, you know, we may be able to catch glimpses later in our life as we look back and we can reflect on what God was doing, how, how God was working. But in the midst of those storms, we, we often have more questions than we do answers. So I want you to know today that you can trust God in the midst of that. 
I mean, he loves you, and, and he's walking the road with you. It might be a bumpy road. It might be a road that contains a lot of twists and turns that are confusing, and the road may be way longer than we anticipated it to be. Um, but God does love you. He won't leave you. He won't forsake you. Uh, you can trust him. I may not be able to tell you why in God's sovereignty he allows certain things, but I do know that you can trust him and that I can trust him. Yeah, next week, we get to, when we get to chapter 25, there's, there's this wonderful statement about God swallowing up death forever, wiping uh, wiping all tears from all faces. And so, you know, there's, there's great glimpses of, of what God is doing. He, he is sovereign overall. There's many times where we just don't understand the details of it, how he's working, but he's sovereign. And so we can trust in that. Let's, uh, let's close this morning. Let's stand together and Let's ask him to give us that, that strengthened faith, that, that deepened faith to, to trust him even in the midst of, of those questions that we have. God, we come to you this morning and, well, the first thing we ought to admit is that we are not sovereign, not in any way, shape, or form. And so, God, when it comes to our pride, I pray that that, that reality would uh, always be on the forefront of our mind. God, that we would worship you as the sovereign God that you are and that that, that would eradicate pride within us. And God, we know that you're sovereign. We know that in our head we can see that written about in Scripture. But at times in our hearts, it's hard to grab onto. It's not usually during the easy times, but it's during the tough times. And so I pray for all of us that, that our faith and our trust in you would deepen, especially during those difficult times. We, we want to know why. We want to know what you're doing and how you're doing it and when you'll do it. And we just like those details. But we know that many times you don't give that to us. And so my prayer for myself and all of us is that, that even in the midst of those questions and the wondering that we have, that our trust in you would, would remain, that it would grow, that it would be firm. We know that you love us. We know that you have sacrificed yourself for us so that we can be redeemed. God, and I pray that we would hang on to that in the midst of any questions we have. Anytime Satan tempts us to doubt your love for us, take us back to that, that firm example of your love. God, whatever it is that, uh, whatever situation is on our mind where we just wonder about your sovereignty, Help us to give that to you right now. Not necessarily expecting that the road will be totally smooth from this point forward, but that you will walk it with us. God, it's in your name we pray. Amen.